listen to your teacher. Repeat after me. I won't grow up. I won't grow up. I don't want to go to school. I don't want to go to school. Just to learn to be So here's my feeling. About this song. I think that this song, despite having all the trappings of like hokey child content, is like extremely punk rock. Obviously, there's questions about like where the frame is, how we are expected to feel about the song. Not me. I was in Peter Pan the musical, actually. It was, uh, it was on NBC. I was Captain Hook. I was. Uh, uh, so welcome to um, welcome to an aesthetic theory of Alejandro Collini. The transformation is complete. I am Alejandro Collini. This is my podcast where every week fewer people listen than the last week. I I gotta stop doing that. That sounds bitter, and I am bitter. I, I'm, I'm trying to figure out how to turn this around. I'm trying to turn this sinking ship around, guys. I'm bailing water out of this podcast as fast as I can, producing dense. <laughs> inaccessible episode after dense inaccessible episode i don't know what more i can do so today we're talking about peter pan <laughs> i was a little hesitant to do this i was quite hesitant to do this because last week obviously i talked about the scarlet letter and this is not on its face a literature podcast that's that's that ain't gonna rack up the numbers um but you know i am trying to get into this headspace of like this rather than being a sort of toxic uh outing grinding my brain against the 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 knife wetting whetstone of uh content whatever Ugh, jesus um you know like maybe this could just be like really interesting stuff that i've consumed and that i want to talk about and that i think is interesting you know interesting 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 that i think is worth fleshing out and talking about and certainly uh having read the original peter pan novel this week and then watched about half of the disney cartoon uh, I feel extremely equipped to spend an hour talking to you about this little cultural icon who hasn't survived the way other cultural icons have. Like, that's the first thing that I thought about, is I was like, like tw maybe 20 years ago, maybe 20 years ago, or maybe it was just that I was a kid at that point. I don't know if kids still know Peter Pan. Um, what did I say to a bunch of kids recently? By the way, I teach. That's why I talk to kids. I'm not just hanging out with kids. But, um... Oh, The Matrix. Well, that was a dumb, that, that was dumb of me. I had like a room full of 11-year-olds and I was like, yeah, yeah, do you guys think that the world is a simulation? <laughs> and then it turned out that like three of them didn't even know what the movie The Matrix was, which makes sense. Um, but so, <laughs> where was I? Uh, Peter Pan, uh, oh, there's birds. <laughs> I was like, what's that noise? It's birds. Don't worry, guys. Nothing scary is happening. Um, Oh, I guess what I was saying is that, like, as a cultural icon, Peter Pan, like, there was a cartoon that I watched as a child, and I will, I'll, I, I, I was going to tell you this eventually, I was in the musical Peter Pan as a child. I don't, I'm not going to tell you exactly who I played, but I'll, I'll give you a hint, a crocodile ate their hand, uh... And I loved it. I spent, and you know, like this is part of, like I have kind of an emotional response to some of these songs because I watched them in rehearsal over and over when I was 11 or 10 years old. Um, I, you know, sang Captain Hook's tango to cook a cake quite large and fill each layer in between. I love, like, there's, there's a few different, like, base Peter Pan properties. There's 
um, a play that apparently came out at the same time as the novel. This is so interesting to me, and it frustrates me as someone who just, like, wants to, like, fill my head with, like, canon. Like, I just want to know what the important thing is. But, like, you know, Peter Pan, like, appears in an early novel of J.M. Barry's, who I'm, I don't know anything about, and my plan is to research him on this episode. So that's a, <laughs> that's a segment that we're going to do, is I'm going to learn a little bit about J.M. Barry. Because um, apparently there's some weird stuff about him. <laughs> So he puts Peter Pan in an early novel, and Peter Pan is like a baby, like in like a in like a sewer. <laughs> he's like got like a boat and a tiny little pillowcase sail, and there's an illustration of the baby sailing through the sewer. And then there's uh, uh, the Peter Pan novel, which is what you all know of as the Peter Pan story. It's the Darling family, and Peter meets Wendy. He's got to get his shadow back, and he takes the kids to Neverland, and they have interactions with Captain Hook, and um, characters who I guess I'll call the Indians. I don't know. Maybe I should call them the Native Americans. It, it's just it's one of these things when a depiction is so problematic and so offensive that, like, um, I'm not sure how much euphemistic cleaning up I should do or if I should just, like, certainly the novel refers to them by a slur, uh, the former name of a football team. Uh, I'm not going to say that. Maybe I should just say Native Americans. I feel so dumb about this. I just, it, it, it's, uh, it's a thing about culture is that everything is filled with horrible stuff. Um, but, uh... So, you know, there's all these battles and various uh, dramatic sequences and the crocodile with the clock inside of him, who is my favorite character in any in any children's story, I believe. Um, that's Peter Pan, the novel. Came out in, like, 1904. But simultaneous to Peter Pan, the novel, came a stage play that was also called, like, Peter Pan... And it was also the same thing. And that is the that is the strangest thing about this novel is you can tell... Oh, I'm so sorry that I'm just getting into like literary criticism again. But I'll move through it fast. You can tell as you're reading the novel that it's also a play. Because every scene is like super cinematic and only seems to have three walls. And like everyone is like clearly performing. It's very like... It's dialogue heavy, but in a way that feels, I don't know, it's just like everything that is described feels like a stage, and it's, there's a lot of like, oh, it's just, it's beautiful, it's beautifully written, it's very, very well done. This is an incredible book, um, I, I haven't read the play yet, I guess I will eventually, I don't want to read a play, I'm so fucking sick of, you remember in college when you'd read a play and you'd be like, oh, this is quick reading, and then it's like, oh, none of it stuck to my, I didn't hear anyone say the words, it's impossible to, to, Never mind. I don't want to get into that. But uh, I don't know. I guess the way you should read plays is you and your friends should sit down and read them out loud to each other. Like assign yourselves roles. Oh, 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 I wish I'd been that much of a little cutie in college. Hey, can you I'm in a I have a 20th century experimental theater assignment. Can you sit down with me and read uh, Arto? <laughs> yeah, you'll be the. Uh, You'll be the flaming genitals, and I'll be the uh, upside-down human spleen or whatever. Uh, it's, it's Theater of Cruelty is the bit. That's Theater of Cruelty. I don't remember what Theater of Cruelty is like. I assume that it involves... <laughs> I assume it involves large prosthetic body parts. Oh, I'm so dumb. All right, so... The play and the novel uh, come out simultaneously. Peter Pan is a hit. Obviously, this is the character J.M. Barry is known for, like Arthur Cannon, excuse me, like Arthur Conan Doyle was sure not, sure, what is going on? 
Like your Bram Stoker with your Dracula, your ACD with your Sherlock. Um, the creator becomes synonymous with the property. There's a ton of J.M. Barry work. I might listen to other J.M. Barry work unless I learn something really scary about him during this episode. But obviously, like, Peter Pan becomes the thing. Um, there is a much louder Disney movie of Peter Pan uh, that doesn't change as much as I thought it would. I mean, I would assume there's no there's no full on death. Obviously, like we our children's media changes because you know I don't really understand what a children's book is in the olden days. You know, we talk about like children's content, and this this always it always frustrates me because like any book is a children's book if the kid could read is a Mitch Hedberg joke. But like the other side of that is like if an adult reads a children's book and like gets something out of it, like you can make fun of them. I know people make fun of like Disney adults and stuff. I actually have a little bit, I think I might have a little more empathy for Disney adults than a lot of people, because, like, I've known a couple, and, like, they're just really sad. Like, they're really sad people who have, like, clung onto something really, really hard that makes them feel warm and sparkly inside, and, like, cool, like, it's nice that the thing they clung onto wasn't gin, you know? I don't, I don't think there's any particular legitimacy or authenticity in the um, maladaptive, unhealthy thing that you use to keep yourself alive being dorky. You know, obviously Disney's an evil company, and, and you know, it's, it's weird. Look, it's weird. It's weird. Yeah, look, if you're having your wedding and you're Ariel and the guy is the prince, like, not the prince. Yeah, whatever, the prince. Like, that's weird. It's weird. But I'm not going to tell you that you're an evil person necessarily we'll see pending opinion pending um take uh take still uh on the boil hey um what was i saying shit what was i saying oh children's literature so a book like peter pan that shit is written like a fucking novel like it is dense it is it is it is complicated you can't you can't sit down as a 7 year old and read the peter pan novel you even in the olden days where you know children who have access to education were exposed to all of the vicious brutality that tutors had to offer you know and they were reading latin at 12 or whatever I, it just doesn't like it there's there's nothing about it except hmm, this is such a weird thing to say there's nothing about it except for the content that feels like a children's story ha that's interesting um so that on a pillow right um so that's an odd thing you know it obviously it also contains death like a, t a toddler murders a pirate you know i guess you don't murder a pirate it was self-defense it was during a swashbuckling fight but like you know there's a lot of death there's a lot of actual death um and Tinkerbell is sexualized even in the book. I thought I I thought I'd mention that to you uh, because like it's weird how hot Tinkerbell is. Sorry, I uh, you know adjust for the fact that these are properties I watched as a child. If Tinkerbell is like not an appropriate person to find hot, I haven't like I don't sit around going like ooh Tinkerbell. But like what I mean is. J.M. Barry's like, and then a fairy came in. She was barely wearing anything at all, and her curves were on full display. Like, he's fully just like, that fairy, yum, yum. Fuck that. Um, but so that is that is a through line from every, like, it's a much more adult story in its initial form. And as it transforms uh, from a Disney movie to a stage musical, uh, which, oh my god, the stage musical is known. Do I want to do this right now? No, hang on. We'll, 
hold me accountable. I'll say that later. Accountability is key. Um, you know, there's a stage musical and uh, it becomes something that kids do at like, again, I did a Peter Pan musical at summer camp and you have to change the story. Uh, so like there's a part in the story where Tinkerbell tries to get Wendy killed and um, she goes to all the lost boys when Wendy's flying in for the first time. And she's like, there's a dangerous Wendy bird. You got to go kill the Wendy bird. And a guy shoots Wendy in the, in the heart and she nearly dies. She dies briefly. Um, in the cartoon, obviously this is cut, uh, and in the stage musical, uh, I don't know, actually, I can't remember. I have seen the NBC live where Christopher Walken is just weakened at Bernie'sing it up, but, um, I think they just cut that out. Like in the Disney musical in the, excuse me, in the Disney movie, the boys all shoot at her, but they miss. Um, so they don't actually hurt her. But the sentiment is the same. I didn't realize how vicious Tinkerbell was. She, the, like, she, you know, it's very stereotypical and, like, traditional misogyny applied to this fairy character. But, like, her jealousy is immediately, like, bloodthirsty rage. Uh, and I love that in a character. I like Tinkerbell uh, in the story. I like that she's so mean. Uh, and then, oh, that's, what, that's one of the things about the book being a play. Is, you know, in the play, when Tinkerbell dies, I don't know if you've seen the play. Peter turns to the audience and he goes, hey, everyone, look, the only thing that can save a fairy is if children believe in fairies. So do you believe? And all the kids go like, yeah. And he's like, I can't. I, I think I hear some kids louder, louder. Do you believe? And they go, yeah. And the spotlight that signifies Tinkerbell starts to kind of like shiver and, and, and expand. Um, that's in the book. Like, in the book, Tinkerbell dies, and Peter turns to an imaginary audience and goes, children of the world, if you believe, bring back Tinkerbell. And he does it with no audience. It's very weird. But, um, so obviously, uh, when I was in Peter Pan, the musical, uh, it was a for, like, you know, 10-year-olds, and they wanted to change the violence significantly, um... So they changed our Peter Pan to make it so that instead of fighting, everyone in Neverland dances. <laughs> Which kind of is a, it's already kind of there because Hook's music is all, in the in the musical, uh, his songs are all like tangos and waltzes. And he even says to the pirates, like, play me a song so I can think. Um so basically, uh, I don't remember exactly what genre the Lost Boys are, but Hook and the Pirates are like ballroom dancers. And then in the musical I was in, the Native American characters are changed to the Calypso crew. I feel my, I have goosebumps saying this. So they're the Calypso crew and they're Calypso dancers. <laughs> and the reason Captain Hook is so afraid of Peter Pan is that he lost his hand in a dance contest. Which I've got to say, I don't believe that the polyprep summer players, like, artistic director is a genius of absurdist comedy. I think that's an accident. I think that's laziness. But that's one of the funniest things I've ever heard in my life. Like, I think that's absolutely beautiful. Um, now, I don't... What I wanted to do for this episode is not spend too much time talking to you about the content and the book and the play and et cetera, et cetera. Um, I want to talk more about this character and... Like, sort of the ideas that this 
property deals in because I would venture that its longevity to the extent that it has had longevity is not just because people like this little flying green boy, but also because of the idea of the boy who doesn't grow up and the necessity of growing up and all of that. <clears throat> Ahem. Um, so as I said before, I think I said this, like, that I Won't Grow Up song, which is kind of the iconic Peter Pan song, I won't grow up. Like, that is, there's literally punk lyrics that are like, I'm not going to be a drone, I'm not going to live in a suburban home. Like, it's exactly the same, and it's true. You know, I I have a lot of complicated feelings about things like this. Uh, you know, I remember when I was younger being like, kind of seems like the whole process of adulthood is like, all of your, like, hope gets crushed out of you. And you're like, yeah, I agree that this is how the world should be. I should get up in the morning and go somewhere I don't really like and waste most of my life working just so that I can eat and then go home and sort of, like, medicate myself with television. And, like, that's life. I remember my dad being like, yeah, well, you'll understand when you're older. And I don't. I don't understand. All I feel, and I can feel it happening to me, is things being like, you know, I'm like, you're 30 years old now. You're going to start having health problems soon. You need health insurance. Maybe it's time to start lowering that, 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 uh, you know, you start, you need to start thinking less about what your dreams are and more about how you're going to pay for that heart disease that you're going to have in 10 years. Like, that's really a scary reality of adulthood. It is a comorbidity of our evil society and the decay of aging. If we were all kids all the time, we would just run the fuck around. <laughs> <laughs> and like eat each other and shit and we'd never have a care in the world um so i i believe it's probably not universal but i think everyone wants to not grow up in a certain sense i've certainly known a lot of kids who are almost the opposite like your kid who's got like really like complex like schedule notebooks and always has the homework assignments and you know they're in like you know, your model UNs and your stuff where it's like, these are your student governments. I'm just pretending to be an adult while I'm a kid. But I feel like you got to still understand. Like, I, I, I don't know, you know, because I've talking again, I teach this comedy class with these kids and a lot of them are like mid, they're like middle school. Oh, my God. Middle school is such hell. And like my life was very different from other kids. I'm sorry to say it. I'm special. I'm different. I'm unique. I'm a I'm I'm a twinkling star in the sky. Um, but like when I think back on middle school, like I guess I wasn't. I was like treated badly. Like I was bullied by kids. There were kids who who treated me badly. I was not bullied by the entire school. But like it kind of sucked. I'd say most of my problems growing up happened at home and not in school. Like, that's kind of what I focus on. So I don't really think about middle school being hell for me. I don't think about it as being like, oh, middle school and high school, you know. But to a lot of kids, middle school, like, I guess middle schoolers are uniquely evil. And then, like, it's, like, right when you start, like, changing and, you know. Uh, so a lot of those kids might be like, yeah, I just want to get the hell out of here. But... Certainly where I'm at being 30 years old, I fully understand that life, uh, even even if my like quality of life fluctuates from year to year, my life has gotten steadily worse as I've gotten older. I don't know if you guys, you probably don't agree with that because some of you are like well-adjusted adults and you're like, oh, look at me. I've got a nightstand. <sighs> I've got a nightstand too. It's just dirty. Look, um, so, so here's, but here's the other 
and I, I don't know this. I didn't, you know, I didn't thesis. I didn't outline this all before I before I started talking. But we kind of live in a society where um, there's been this big drop in the perceived adulthood of an entire generation, like from Gen X to millennials or, you know, the biggest gap is from boomers to millennials. But like millennials are this generation where a lot of the lines of what constitutes being an adult have been redrawn, you know, um, a significant number of millennials. This wanes as I get older and older, but like even into their early 30s still get help from their parents somehow. They are still um, entangled in their parents for aid and assistance, even not financially, in ways that are sort of beyond what you might think of as a, an adult. In previous generations, you know, a lot of uh, people who were 26 might already have a one or two year old child. Uh, I'm 30 and feel absolutely, and this is also male privilege, very much so, but like, um, I would venture not to speak out of my area of knowledge, but I think this is true for, for everyone, that the time at which it feels like you're supposed to have a kid has changed a lot, because a lot of us are like, still just trying to fucking get our feet under us, you know, that thing about millennials aren't going to own homes, we're not going to retire, etc., etc., um, and so what that has created is a sort of, I don't want to say arrested development, but like it's created an extended adolescence. I mean, I, I can't, again, can't speak for you guys. You, if you know about my life, if you've listened to even a few episodes of this podcast, you know that I am not where most people my age are. Uh, I am in, in what I would call an extended adolescence. You know, sometimes I'm talking to my therapist and she's like, well, you know, you're growing up. Uh, still like, <laughs> um, and so we have this like, uh, sort of wide ranging blow to the perception of adulthood. And then we also have, and this is how you might think of me, the stereotype of the man boy, which has become like huge in the last like 30 years. It used to be that a man boy was like the protagonist of a movie and represented the ultimate in failure. I need to find a woman and change my life through the rescue of a dolphin or the defeat of magical enemies. And, and at the end, I'm going to have a job that involves a suit, you know, um, or at worst, I will have found a way to use my creativity to get myself legitimacy. But now, like, sort of being a fuck-up is like, I hate to say this, but it almost feels like a life path that many people are just like, yeah, I'll be one of those dudes who cobbles together, like, I'll work three days a week at the coffee shop, and I'll get help from my parents, and then I'll submit, like, blogs, and... I'll hang out I'll and I'll host a pod. I'm, I'm almost literally fucking describing myself. I'm literally describing, you know, but like we we create content for small nuggets of people, almost more for us than for other people. And we watch cartoons and the media that is made. This is another thing about children's media is these movies come out that are ambiguously their kids movies, but they're also made with the knowledge and intention that people in their 20s and 30s are going to watch these movies childhood and adulthood have like become grossly intertwined in a way. And personally, I don't think it's the worst thing in the world. I think there's a lot of awful stuff about this idea of like, you're 18, get the hell out of my house. You know, like, 
um, the sort of just shoving people into because that's the exact I, I won't grow up thing is that like life has a structure. You go to high school. If you are in a certain realm or class or cultural milieu, you go to college and then you get the job that you are able to get according to essentially your cast. Like, you know, uh, and it is regarded, you know, it is regarded as a like stunning achievement if you are able to escape that cast and travel upward and a stunning failure if you fall beneath your cast, you know, um, I, I feel that every day as somebody who like had every opportunity in the world and really should be doing really well. Um, but, you know, uh, in older days where parents were a lot more just like shoving you out the door and being like, next stage, next stage, next stage. Um, it might have created more people out there, in, you know, not in quote unquote arrested stages of adolescence, but. I don't know. Were they happy? My boomer parents aren't happy. They were pretty bad <laughs> at being parents. And then they also did that whole, this is the whole, I mean, this is every, every parent is like, you guys deserve to suffer because I suffered. It's amazing stuff. Um, but adulthood is also, I'm, forgive me if you guys know this stuff, but like, it's also necessary. Uh, it is necessary for a variety of reasons, most prominent among them, just what I said, that society doesn't make allowances for you. It doesn't go, oh, you want to be a kid? Like, you know, if you can't, if if you're really, like, such a kid that you can't grow up, then, like, you better have a trust fund or, you know, you better have some people willing to, like, take care of you. Um, and you got to understand that, ba that depending, you know, if you have a trust fund, you can be a perfectly happy, uh, normal guy for your entire life. But... If you're like a sick person, then you're always going to be the person who couldn't be a real adult, the person who couldn't enter adulthood. Um, so Peter Pan, <laughs> the thing that I always, I, you know, I, I was thinking about this today as I was about to start recording is that he's not really a boy. He's actually a little, he's the oldest of the Lost Boys. He's bigger than everyone else, and he's not not growing up. Even when uh, when it's described, I believe, and this is like, I'll try to keep within text, but Peter's backstory is that he was like totally fucking abandoned by his parents or, or something of that nature or like separated from them in some way. But that even that implies that he has grown from a child. Um, and the fact I think that he is like among all the Lost Boys, like they're all, if I'm going to ballpark them, like 10, 11, and he feels like 15, 16. You know, Wendy and Tinkerbell are both attracted to him, which to me also says that like, oh, and Tiger Lily, who is the like princess of the Native Americans, she also wants to date Peter Pan, um, which says to me that he's like, you know, a teenager and that like, you know, there's, there's this idea and, and it's weird in the book, too, because Wendy kind of, and we're going to, I'm, I'm going to say some things and I want us all to just understand that they're like qualities that the book is designating and that they're problematic. Like the idea that like Wendy, like she's a little girl and all she wants is to be a mother and like keep house, obviously, uh, is a bummer. 
But um, within the story, that is like what has happened. It's like Peter has lured Wendy to Neverland with the promise that she can be a mother to like all these boys. She can tell them stories and she can tuck them in at night and she can cook them dinner and she can nurse their wounds. Like he's literally like, we've got so many wounds. We need you to put bandages on our wounds. And she's like, oh my God, I want to put bandages on these little boys' wounds. But she sets up a sort of father-mother playing house situation where Peter's father, and like Peter comes home every day from swashbuckling and all the boys are like, hello, father. It's interesting that he accepts this father role, but he won't, and there there are these moments where, she, it's actually kind of funny, because it does feel like they're like trying to talk about like sex, like or at least romance. Like I, like, I guess that's the idea, because it's a children's story. But like, there's so many times where Wendy's like, Peter, I don't want to be your mother. I want something else that women want from men. <laughs> and Peter's like, you want to you fight? And she's like, no, no. The women, girls and boys, they connect in ways that aren't just mother and son. He's like, you know, he's just completely oblivious. He has a refusal to grow up that is not almost, almost not reflected in his, like, body and capabilities. Like, he is bigger, stronger, more grown, arguably smarter than other, all the other boys. And this is because he's fucking growing. Um, that having been said, I should mention there is no Peter grows up storyline in this. At the end of the story, Wendy returns to her home because she misses her family, Wendy and the, and the little boys, Michael and what a George, Charlie, some other British boy. And then she just grows up, and Peter Pan promises he'll visit her, but he forgets because he's a little weird boy. But one day, she's like 45, and he comes to the window, and he's like, whoa, what's your deal? Come to Neverland with me. And she's like, uh, look at me. Um, so Peter himself does not grow up, even though he is trapped in what seems to be, like, the most difficult stage of, like... You know, all the other boys are, like, perpetual boys, theoretically. But Peter's, like, a perpetual almost man, which I think is so interesting that, like, life is, like, yanking him. And obviously, that is one of the funniest things about this book uh, and story in general is that, like, Captain Hook, one of the most fearsome pirates in the world, his nemesis, little flying green boy. He's like, I'm going to get this little green boy. I'm so scared of it. He cut off my hand. He cut off my hand. Oh, and he fed it to a crocodile. Can I just, let's just take a second. So there's a crocodile on the island. I'm sure there's more than one. Well, maybe just one. The way that I think of Neverland is that it's kind of supposed to be a conglomerate of the things that little boys play about in, like, Britain in the 1900s. So sort of like a Western, you know, like, cowboys and Indians thing and swashbuckling pirates. Um, those feel like popular, like, little boy areas of play in early, uh, you know, British whatever. Um Captain Hook, uh, oh my god, what did I, what was I, what was I going to, what was I going for? Oh, there's a crocodile on the island, Jesus, Jesus. His name's Croc, maybe. In the musical, Croc was played by a human being and had a solo and everything. But, um, so the crocodile eats his hand, and the crocodile thinks that the hand tastes delicious. And so the crocodile is now following Hook around because he wants to eat the rest of Hook. And... 
the only way that Hook could get away from the crocodile is that he fed the crocodile a clock. So now the ticking of the clock denotes the coming of the crocodile. That is a beautiful mechanism. I love that. Um, but so there is something strange to like, you know, no, none of the pirates are ever like, maybe we should just, I mean, actually they do. The pirates at one point, they say that they want a mutiny. They're like, look, we want to go back out into the sea and be pirates. I don't want to dock here and just keep searching for this little boy. Like, your plan is just to murder a bunch of little boys. And, like, we could murder adults out there on the seas and they have gold and stuff, you know? But Hook, obviously, is very fearsome and he, uh, he insists on his way. Um, let me think here. Oh, okay, you know what? I think it's time for our segment. Um, what's, what are we going to call the J.M. Barry segment? Um, Barry Banter. Damn, that's bad. Um, J.M. Banter. Nope. Uh, J.M. Barry. Okay, Sir Matthew, Sir James Matthew Barry, first baronet. He was Scottish. Oh, he was Scottish. Okay, um, cool. Um, there he met the Lewin Davies boys. Okay, I'm going to... Lewin Davies boys were the inspiration for J.M. Barry's Peter Pan. They were the sons of Sylvia and Arthur Lewin Davies. Okay, okay, hang on. We're learning, we're learning. Whoa! So he, like, befriended... One, two, three, four, five. There are these five boys who are the sons of Sylvia and Arthur Davies... And the two of them die, and Barry becomes their guardian. A third committed suicide. Ugh, one of them committed suicide. Jesus. One of them drowned. That's tragic. Okay, hang on a second. Although they're okay, this is this is what I this is what I wanted to. I'm so sorry, I feel so salacious and dumb saying this, but this is the paragraph I wanted. Okay. Although there has been suspicious uh, suspicion about the nature of Barry's relationship with the boys, there's no evidence that he engaged in any sexual activity with them, nor that there was any suspicion of such at the time. Their father was troubled by their relationship with Barry, but that was based on its interference with his own relationship with them as a father, and he didn't care for the man personally. <clears throat> As an adult, Nico flatly denied any appropriate behavior or intentions by Barry. I don't believe that... I don't believe that Uncle Jim ever experienced what one might call a stirring in the undergrowth for anyone, man, woman, or child. He was innocent, which is why he could write Peter Pan. Whoa. Um... Okay. Wow. That is a very interesting quote from this kid. There's like, hey, we were worried that this guy might have been like acting inappropriate with you sexually. And the kid's like, I don't think that guy has sexuality. <laughs> well, he's an adult now. That's interesting. There's a later paragraph in which a British conservative party found some some friend of the kids when they were teens who said that the relationship was very unhealthy, but also said there was no sexual component to it. <clears throat> Um, I'm okay. I mean, I don't know. What, what do we do nowadays when we read something like this? Um, what does it mean? Does it mean anything? Like, is it, it's certainly important in the sense that, like, I really hope that guy wasn't molesting those kids. Um, 
But it's also, I mean, there's an extent to which, I don't know, am I being weird? Am I, like, doing that thing of, like, assuming that any man who has a relationship with children that is caring is a pedophile? Or is that a dog? Because, like, there's, I don't know. Maybe the reason, may, yes, the reason I felt that there would be more weird stuff about J.M. Barry is that I heard that Johnny Depp in the Finding Neverland movie, like, was inspired by Michael Jackson. But... But the thing is, Michael Jackson, and I'm sorry, is like a really, really awful, evil sexual predator. And to draw that parallel, I think, kind of made me assume J.M. Barry must be as well. But I really, again, don't have any evidence for that. Uh, So I don't know. I I don't even know if it's responsible for me to bring that up. It's just just like, you know, children and people who are into children. (laughs) Ah, they're all under suspicion. Anyone who writes a children's book, you gotta look into him. Um, that's so funny. I don't think he. I don't think he liked anyone. Um, let's see. Oh my God, Johnny Depp was nominated for Best Actor for Finding Neverland. Hang on, I'm gonna look at the plot of Finding Neverland for a second. Um, so it's just like about his relationship with the with the boys who inspire Peter Pan or the boy who never grew up. Um, oh, there's mermaids on the island as well. All right. So <clears throat> I guess this might be a little bit of a short episode because I already feel as though I'm kind of running out of what I wanted to to, to explore. Um, but I guess I want to just like sort of circle back to the idea of like growing up um, and whether it is a necessity as described by the text, I would argue, yes, Um Why does Wendy decide to go back? Well, it's just because she... Well, there's, I mean... There's certainly a why is this day different, why do we on this day eat unleavened bread quality to um, their happenings on Never Never Land. Like, they're there for what appears to be, like, months, if not years. Um, And they meet all of the characters on the island, and they have all these sorts of, like, close scrapes, and they form relationships with people, um... But at the end, Captain Hook kidnaps all the lost boys, and there's this big fight that leaves all the pirates dead, and they basically chase all the surviving pirates off the island or kill them, and then Wendy's like, all right, time to go. So there's a possibility that Wendy's like, yeah, we gotta go, we're gonna die, but there's a possibility also that she's like, I gotta really be back in the world, right? Like, um... Wendy being the one who is oldest is most in touch. You know, the other kids are like, I don't know, one of them might be like four or five, the one who kills a pirate. Um, And I I don't think those two ever want to go back. They could just be lost boys. But Wendy's like, you know, there's actually a sad passage where they don't remember uh, before times. They don't remember their mom and dad. They don't remember the house. And Wendy is like trying to like quiz them to make them remember stuff. It's a little bit of a bummer. (laughs) Um... But so when Wendy goes back, and this is like they switch back to the Darling House where like it's a bummer because those parents have just been like, the kids disappeared. Peter Pan stole our kids. They saw Peter Pan flying away with their kids. That's the funniest thing, too. Um, And they've just been sad for like years or months, whatever it is. And then one day the kids fly in happy as clams and they just they play a trick on the parents where they all get into bed and they pretend to be like just sleeping in bed like nothing ever happened. Um And then they all grow up. Wendy grows up. She gets a husband. She gets a child. 
She's sitting by the window with her child. Peter Pan comes to visit her. And is it... Is there a moral? Is it about... I don't know that it is. I think it might just be... God, I think this might be a really good fucking book. Because I think it might just be about how, like, this is something that needs to happen. I don't... Again, I don't fully agree that it needs to happen, but in society... You know, everyone talks about, like, how we could fix society. The way that we could fix society is if, like, everything electrical burned and we're ju- we were just, like, eating, like, grapes again. Like, that's... But like that wouldn't even do it that because people would still be like, oh, I've got my I've got to look at my flag, you know, ugh, 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 we got to get Peter Pan over here. Um, I wonder if Peter Pan could, you know, what maybe Peter Pan could create peace in the Middle East. Um, what are some other problems Peter Pan could uh, solve? Peter Pan could solve the border crisis. Peter Pan. um well, Peter Pan couldn't solve the voter confidence issue. Peter Pan definitely. Because he... <laughs> Peter Pan would be in our modern world for like two minutes and he'd be like, I heard about this thing, QAnon. <laughs> I gotta save the children. Peter Pan's like flying around, you know, like harassing John Podesta and stuff. God, that's so strange. All right. Is this the episode? Is this uh, uh, an aesthetic theory of Peter Pan? Yeah, I think this is a this is a little bit of a, a shorter one, but but fuck fuck you guys. <laughs> All right, uh, take care of yourselves. Um, we'll be back with continuing episodes. Uh, everything is delightful, and um, oh, second star to the right and straight on till morning doesn't mean anything. In the book, it's explained that that's just, like, a fancy phrase Peter uses and that he actually doesn't really know how to get to Neverland, and they get, like, very lost. Uh, It's a great scene. That's all.